Hey, everybody, and welcome to season two of the All About Everest podcast. And I'm your host, Pauline Reynolds Nuttall. On this podcast, you can get anything and everything about Mount Everest, including interviews, book recommendations, tips, updates, and a whole lot more. So welcome to the spring 2023 Everest climbing season. And here we go. Hey there, and welcome to today's episode of the All About Everest podcast. This episode is an interview with Gabby Nell. She is the youngest South African to summit Mount Everest, as well as the youngest physician in the world to summit Mount Everest. She had no intentions of breaking any records. She just wanted to summit the mountain, and somehow she ended up with two records, What a fantastic interview. She is super sweet, super smart, and a lot of our interview, we discussed why this season had such a high death toll, some of the issues that occurred during the climbing season and while she was on the mountain, and it was just a fantastic interview, so I hope that you enjoy it. I was going to go more in depth to some of the deaths that have occurred this season, but I'll think that I'll save that for another day. So today we have the interview with Gabby. Next week, I have another interview that I have been trying to get for so long. So I'll give you a hint. You guys know how proud I am to be both Israeli and American, and I've been trying to get an Israeli climber on the podcast for a while. There's only eight Israelis that have ever summited Mount Everest, and I have an interview scheduled with one of them. I did a little bit of a pre-interview with him. Such an amazing human, and I know that you guys will enjoy it. So next week will also be an interview. The second thing is I'm feeling much better. I am not sick anymore. I had mentioned that I had bronchitis and It's finally going away. I can feel my lungs are healing. And on D-Day, June 6th, my grandbaby was born, little baby Archer. So I'm really excited about that. Now, one of the things that I often forget is that I'm signed up with Buy Me a Coffee, which if you aren't aware, essentially you can tip the podcast if you enjoy it by buying me a coffee. And this week I have two people that uh, left a tip. The first one, I don't know her first name. I just know her username on buy me a coffee. Blessed with two bought me a coffee and her message reads, Hey Pauline, hope you're having a great day. I'm messaging from the County of Kent in the UK. I just wanted to say how much I'm enjoying listening to your podcast and would love to hear more about how your outdoors experience feeds into your life of Everest. I've left you a five-star rating on Apple. Keep up the good work, hun. Kisses. Aw, thank you, Blessed With Two. So I pretty much was raised in Montana. I live in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, Right now, I live at about 4,500 feet, but my whole 
backyard is just mountains, these huge, massive things. I am not a mountaineer or a climber, even though um, I've talked to a couple people about this and there is a possibility that I am considering Kilimanjaro next year. And uh, as Gabby and I talked about in our interview, it is considered the gateway mountain. So you never know. We camp a lot in our family. We hike a lot. And again, we live in the middle of the mountains. So that's kind of how my outdoorsy life ties in with Mount Everest. Uh, Bob O. Bob O. left us, uh, bought us two cups of coffee this week. Hey, kid, thank you so much for your podcast. I love listening to it. I wanted to summit Mount Everest once, but I wasn't able to. Keep up the good work and keep on podcasting. Well, thanks, Bob, and blessed with two. I appreciate you guys. And anyone else who wants to buy us a coffee, the link is in the, um, the notes for this episode in the description. Oh my gosh, you guys, I have a killer deal for you. As you guys know, I'm super outdoorsy and I camp over 45 nights a year, which isn't a lot, but it is because I have a family. And one of the ways that I find affordable gear and also discover new things as well is by subscribing to the Nomadic subscription box. It's a subscription box that comes once a month or quarterly, and it has outdoor gear in it. I have discovered some of the most amazing brands that I absolutely love and and things that I wouldn't even have tried. I've tried because of my subscription. It starts at $29 a month and you don't have to get the subscription box. If there's something that you love, you can buy it right off of their website. The code to use to get 10% off is Everest and their website is thenomadic.com. That's the nomadic with a K.com. And I'll have a link in this description of this podcast episode. All right. And on we go with today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Gabby as much as I enjoyed doing it. It was super fun. And I wish her well in her recovery from her frostbite. So here we go on to the interview. Hey, Gabby, thank you so much for joining me for the All About Everest podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's great being able to talk to you in person. So, Gabby, you're currently living in Perth, Australia. Yes, I am. I'm working here as a doctor, but I am proudly South African by citizenship. And what got you into climbing? Because South Africa doesn't have huge mountain ranges. (laughs) No, it doesn't, but it does have some beautiful ones, I must add. Um, As a child, uh, growing up in South Africa, I used to go to my grandfather's game farm over the weekends or over summer breaks. And I was a bit of a wild child uh, as a youngster. And my grandfather and I used to climb in South Africa, what we call kopis, 
which are these rocky outcrops um, that are excuses for mountains. But this was when I had just learned to walk and it was a passion of mine at that point. I would beg my mom and dad to drive us through to this farm on a Friday afternoon after school. And I wouldn't want to leave on a Sunday afternoon. And starting with these small little hills, I think it just progressed from there. Then as a, a teenager and a young adult, I spent some time in Cape Town and got to climb some of the mountain ranges around there and got involved in trail running and eventually made my way to Tanzania to working one of the hospitals there. And one of the doctors I was working with had planned a trip to climb Kilimanjaro. And I spontaneously, with the departure date of being 48 hours from my decision-making, decided that I'm going to join and I'm going to climb Kili. And from then, it's been all up. I had this passion for climbing that was awoken by this African mountain that I absolutely fell in love with. Yeah, I hear that Keeley is like the gateway mountain to mountaineering. <laughs> Keeley steals your soul. It is the most beautiful place with the most incredible people and stories you could ever imagine. I call it the soul mountain and I suppose I'm a little biased being from the African continent, but it's an incredible mountain to be on. It's the perfect combination of some tracking, some technical climbing, some slippery and high areas, and then you've got the beautiful snow on the peak up to Uhuru. And so I think it is the gateway mountain. And for many climbers, it is their first, including myself. And I think it's quite a special mountain to choose. And what after you climbed Keeley, what was your plan after that? What did you decide to do? So Gabby being Gabby, I started researching the seven summits, which I think most climbers end up doing. And I thought, if not, why not? And sadly, uh, COVID uh, put a little pause in the plan for two years, but it did mean I could return to Cape Town and go back to the roots of climbing some of the mountain ranges there. Um, but after Kili, I started researching what mountains I could do and what mountains I could access with COVID restrictions. And uh, luckily I could get to Nepal um, fairly fast after restrictions started lifting. And I started brushing up on some of the skills that I'd gained over the years and honed in on my snow climbing and got to do a few of the Nepal mountains and peaks. Um, and I don't think my family will be happy to hear this, but there is still a part of me that's chasing those seven summits. So stay tuned. <laughs> because you have, you have two under your belt now. You have Everest and Keeley. So you only have five left, right? I do. And I'm very, very close to Carstens and Kosciuszko. So depending on what list you look at, I'm fairly close to those two. Some will be a little bit more challenging to get to, uh, sadly, um, but who knows what the next year and a half holds. I guess you're going to have to see. So you've actually, you've been to EBC three times and two of those times 
um, you attempted to summit Mount Everest with Fisher being successful. So let's go to your, your first time at EBC and kind of your thoughts and emotions when you got there. I think the first time I ever walked into EBC, it was like living a dream, to be honest. There were all the expedition tents out and it was a beautiful clear day. And there were all these climbers hustling and bustling around the camp. And I couldn't help but make the decision there and then that I was going to climb Everest. And from that moment, I was hooked on this mountain. Uh, she is incredible to look at from Kalapathar, but being at the base camp and seeing what it takes to actually summit this mountain uh, was incredible. And she stole my heart probably from that minute that I was at EBC. But the camp has grown over the years that I've been there. And this year, was very different to what I first saw when I first walked into EBC a while ago. When was the, when did, when were you first there? What year was it? It was 2022. So last spring season was the first time. Um, and so you were saying it was a lot different than last year. Kind of elaborate on that a little bit. This year when I walked into EBC, it was a little bit of a shock. I wasn't expecting the sheer number of people um, that there would be. And having been there in the spring, the heat of the spring season last year and arriving in the heat of the spring season this year, um, it was quite, quite, quite a take back, to be honest. Um, I think it was simply putting an image to the sheer number of permits that were issued this year and number of climbers that I'd encounter on the mountain. But it took over an hour to get from one side of the base camp to the other side of the base camp. And there were just people everywhere, tents and people, every spot that you could put a tent up, there was a tent. And that was quite shocking for me this year. So you tried to summit Mount Everest in the fall. And how yes. did that go for you? We were stopped about camp three due to weather. We had very heavy snowfall towards the end of the season. We can always say if, had, what if, but if I had been there a week earlier, we would have, there would have been a high chance of success. And it was a very different experience to climbing in the spring season. You remove the human factor completely. So it's a very intimate experience of climbing Everest and probably more so what it was like um, a few years ago before we had the SBCC coming in to fix the ice fall and fix ropes. Um, so definitely required uh, more hard work from you as a climber. Um, the skills level required was, was much higher, it was difficult, the snowfall was thick, the Kumbu icefall was dangerous, but it was a special experience, if anything, to have the opportunity to, to climb Everest in conditions that probably very few would ever experience. And so this year, how big was your team that you went with this year? 
This year was a team of nine clients and a Sherpa for most of the clients, um, except a few that were climbing unassisted. Um, so not an extensively big team. I'm not a fan of climbing with very big teams. I do like and prefer smaller intimate teams, but um, very experienced climbers on the team and we all got along very well. And I heard there was a lot of waiting this year um, for the weather window to open. Yeah, there was a lot of waiting in general, which is kind of a norm for your stay at base camp, no matter how long that is. This year was exacerbated to an effect due to firstly a delay in rope fixing. Um, and my condolences go out to the Sherpas that lost their lives in the ice fall at the start of the season. Um, having ropes up only on the 12th of May when last year the summit first summits were around the 9th of May with clients showed a bit of a delay in the start and then the weather was very unpredictable this year and I think a lot of climbers had to kind of balance the risk of pushing for a summit knowing that it's not the perfect weather or the alternative, which would be waiting and possibly having the weather turn completely and not having a chance at summit. So it was a very fine line this season in terms of balancing the risk versus reward of a summit in terms of weather. But yes, it, it, it was a very late start considering the first summits were around the 13th, 14th of May that I'm aware of. And uh, we were up at South Cole waiting for the weather at that point. So we, we ended up actually having to stay two nights at Camp 4, which is not ideal, as you're aware of. So right. I spent over three days uh, waiting for, for a chance to actually summit. So, yes, lots of waiting. That's a lot of time to be at Camp 4. Usually it's in and out. Yes, so it's not what you want. It's not what any climber would want. And there were logistical concerns in addition to the weather that meant that I had to wait that long at Camp 4. But um, the weather definitely did play a role. Um, the first night we arrived at Camp 4, we didn't get a chance to push. The second night, um, despite weather predictions predicting a chance of a summit and winds low enough to summit, what we could see from, from South Cole up towards the balcony area of the mountain, the, the winds were just too high to even consider a, a summit push safely. So weather, weather meant that unfortunately you had to make some sacrifices on the mountain this year in terms of waiting in places that you just really don't want to have to wait. And um, so did your entire team make it to the top or was it just a, a portion of you? No, um, it was myself and one other climber that managed to summit this year, which is um, not the best success rate. But once again, that was a multitude of factors that I believe will become a day-to-day -day part of climbers having to face on Everest that, that caused that statistic. So what do you think could, so last year, it seemed a lot more people summited. There were less deaths. 
less injuries last year. Um, and looking at the permits and the people who summited, it was probably a little over 50%. And this year, maybe a third of the people who paid to climb summited. Yeah, and I think the factors that play a role in that, um, like I've mentioned, will probably be the same factors that are going to affect success rates going ahead in the future on the mountain. Uh, like you mentioned, the number of permits that were issued this year, the human factor on Everest definitely played a role in the summit success, um, having to stand in queues um, as low as going from camp three to camp four, even some people experience queues from camp two up to camp three. More importantly, the wait times to get down off the summit and back down to an area where you can change your oxygen. The delays were, were beyond what I could imagine on the mountain this year. And then there's the increase in possibly inexperienced climbers on the mountain, climbers that haven't got or haven't learned the technical skills to get through the Kungu safely, which end up turning around at camp one or camp two and not pushing for the summit. So I, I do think it's a multitude of factors that, that affected that statistic for this year, in addition to, like we've discussed, the severe weather. I know that uh, the Hams Hospital in Kathmandu had the record number of frostbites they've ever seen before from the season. And so lots of injuries on the mountain, lots of deaths. I believe this year was the deadliest season on the mountain itself. It was. So overall, it was for someone who's been on the mountain before and has multiple friends that have climbed in previous seasons, it sound like, sounds like it was quite a horrifying season for most climbers this year. And uh, you and I had talked about how the amount of injuries were almost double. So let's talk about why you think that happened and let's talk about your injuries so injuries on the mountain it was cold first of all um we were experiencing one of the coldest seasons and then you had the wind chill factor on top of that that most climbers would have had to climb in if they decided to push earlier on in the season um, to avoid risking not even getting a chance. So frostbite and my frostbite, which was my injury, was, was one of those statistics. Um, and these are from climbers that, that have quite a, quite a few 8,000 meters under their belts and very good gear. So that was definitely an unforeseen factor this year. In addition to that, pure inexperience or not knowing your body and your limits with climbers on the mountain this year, not knowing when to say no is no, it's time to turn back. Um, I'm putting myself and others at risk. And then like we discussed earlier, the whole new rapid ascent of Everest factor and not ensuring proper acclimatization between, before moving to higher altitudes I believe also played uh, a big role in, in this year's injuries and deaths and then adding to what we're aware of from previous seasons, the theft of oxygen was definitely a pertinent factor this year on, on the peak. And um, 
just the sheer ratio of of climbers to to area on, on Mount Everest this year. I heard that there were, I mean, there's usually a theft here and there, but this year I heard it was, there were at least four major thefts. Yes, there were definitely thefts on the mountain. Um, we actually ended up losing slash having our emergency oxygen stolen on our way down from the summit, um, which meant that I and my fellow plumber ended up climbing down from about the balcony or even a little bit higher without O's. Um, so it's definitely well and truly an issue on Everest. And I've experienced that firsthand now. And do you think that if your guys's oxygen had not been stolen, do you think it would have been less likely you would have had injuries? I think my injuries would have been less severe. I definitely saw a worsening um, after not being on oxygen. Frostbite, um, one of the primary first aid methods of prevention of worsening is oxygen and sufficient oxygen to your peripheries. And without oxygen and supplemental oxygen at that altitude over 8,000 meters. Unfortunately, the reality of it is, is it's, it's going to get worse. And you were saying that um, you were speaking to the doctor in Kathmandu, and he said that this has been the worst year for injuries and frostbite. Yes, so um, I'm good friends with a plastic surgeon that works at the hospital from which all air rescues of Everest come, um, all heli rescues. And um, it has been in the history of Everest, the highest number of cases of frostbite that have come through and the most dangerous season in terms of illness and injury on the mountain. And I think I witnessed that firsthand out of six South Africans that were on the mountain this year, three were hospitalized two in ICU for, for frostbite. And like I said, these are experienced climbers that have climbed before. So, but you, so you, you summited, you have it under your belt now. So, <laughs> and your family might hear this. So what mountain are you thinking of next? Well, <laughs> I'm sorry, mom and dad. But um, the seven summits are definitely still on the cards at this point. Um, I am going to definitely take a break from the mountains until I'm fully healed, which may take months at this point and possibly surgery. But once the mountain bike has bitten you, it's not something you can escape. <laughs> so I'll start small. I'm lucky to be in Oz, which has one of the old seven summits located on the East Coast. So that will probably be where I start from again. And then who knows? <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> so for your, we haven't really talked about frostbite a lot on the podcast. So, and with you being a doctor, you've got the knowledge. So how do people develop frostbite? Like what happens? So there's a multitude of factors as well. Uh, frostbite as a whole requires you to have limited blood supply to your peripheries, coldness, 
and the factor of hypoxia in the peripheries as well. And when I look back at my climb, I probably had a combination of all three of these. Um, when you cross Hillary's step, you're not as tuned in to move those little fingers of yours on your Jumar. For, for me, I was more worried about being shoved off the, the edge of Hillary's, cliff, uh, Hillary's step rather than wiggling my, my right hand. And that's probably where it fell apart a little bit in terms of the frostbite for me. Um, but the wind chill factor is a big one. And most climbers that get frostbite specifically on Everest um, happens on the summit because we take our gloves off to take out our mobile phones and our cameras to take pictures on the top. And um, then we expose our digits, not only to the highest mountains altitude in the world, but the wind chill factor and the sheer coldness of being on top. And how long is it going to take you to recover? Because you have just your fingers, right? Yep, so I had frostbite in bilateral feet, grade one, grade two, uh, frostbite in my left hand, grade one, and grade four, which is the worst grading on my right hand. And unfortunately with frostbite, there's no set time frame, which is a little bit frustrating <laughs> for someone like me, but it can take anywhere from days for grade one frostbite to heal up to months for grade four frostbite depending on what management plan you go down. Um, conservative is the best, and that can take up to several months to return to normal. And when they treat grade four, is it surgery? Is it medicine? Is How exactly do they treat that? So frostbite is a little bit of an unknown diagnosis in the medical world. It's trial and error and taking your best, your best guess. There's certain windows after you get the frostbite where certain treatments can be given. So for example, less than 24 hours, you've got the highest chance of recovering fully. For myself, I was somewhere between 24 and 48 hours and we took a jab at something called thrombolysis which essentially is putting a line um, in one of the big uh, vessels in your body and shooting through medicine to try and break the clots in your finger. In addition to that, we use blood thinners um, and ibuprofen to try and reduce the swelling of the finger. Some people um, pop the blisters, uh, blister decompression, <laughs> to, to, to assist with the blood flow actually getting to the tips. And... Um, then we do something called rewarming, which basically is taking a 40 degree Celsius bowl of water and putting your fingers in that for about an hour a day to try and stimulate um, blood into those, those peripheral areas. And then obviously the, the last resort is surgery and amputation. And unfortunately, a few of the climbers on, on the season this year are heading down that route with, with very severe frostbite. Yeah, there's one that I've been talking to and he's, it's very likely he will lose several fingers on his right hand, his, you know, main climbing hand. And that was not uncommon this year. No, no, definitely not. Um, to give you an example, my Sherpa, 
who's been climbing for years and years and years and has multiple 8,000 meters under his belt, got frostbite for the first time in his life on Everest this year. And I think that's a clear indication of where the bar was set for, for injury and illness during the season. And you have two records under your belt this year, right? Let's talk about those. Yes, I do. Um, I wasn't going for any records this year, but um, I was purely going to climb for myself after the failed attempt last year. And um, I'm very, very, very excited to announce that I'm officially the youngest South African to summit which is very exciting for my home country, especially considering, like you said, we don't have the biggest mountains there. And um, secondly, I'm the youngest medical doctor to summit Mount Everest this year, and very fitting that um, there was a large number of illness and injury on the mountain as well this year. <laughs> and uh, you and I had talked a little bit about, because um, you're, you're still looking into what fields that you want to like stay in, but would you ever consider like working at EBC as a physician? Uh, yes, I spent some hours at Everest ER this year and uh, got to catch up with some of the guys there. And I'm quite good friends with quite a few doctors that were expedition doctors, both on teams this year at Everest and uh, lower down on the mountain and do expeditions around the world. And myself and the doctor that actually treated me in Kathmandu have quite an exciting project for the Everest region from a medical perspective. And uh, hopefully you'll be seeing a lovely new hospital near Lukla in the years coming. That would be amazing. They need one. They really sure. just a, a first point of call, like injuries like the frostbite we've discussed, just having somewhere to do that initial treatment will probably save countless lives on the mountain and the region of the Kumbu. Absolutely, because those services aren't just for the climbers and, and no. the trekkers, it's for the people in that region that they don't have the access to modern medicine that most places you know, take for granted. No, and I think uh, the communities in the area definitely deserve to have a facility and access um, to a hospital in, in the region. And what better place than Lukla, where there's quick access to fly in and fly out of Kathmandu. Sure. Gabby, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed it. And I hope we have you again on your after your next adventure. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's episode. And thank you so much, Gabby, for interviewing with me. One thing that I wanted to mention that I totally forgot about, um, I'll be making some updates to our Patreon page. So be sure to check those out in the next week or so. And next week, we have another interview with an amazing person who his personal story of not only climbing Mount Everest, but why he climbed Mount Everest really touched my heart. So I hope you tune in next week. And as I said, 
I decided to come up with a catchphrase. And after talking to so many people about mountaineering and Everest and everybody's different style, the catchphrase I came up with was climb your own climb until next week. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the All About Everest podcast. We would love it if you would rate, subscribe, and follow wherever you listen to your podcast. You can find us on social media at All About Everest Podcast or at Mama Bear Outdoors. You can support our podcast by subscribing to our Patreon or by buying us a coffee. Until next time.